Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Barnyard language. It's Katie and Arlene here. I think I may have woken Katie up from a nap. I was just telling Arlene that on Monday mornings when everybody leaves, I take my meds and then I go back to sleep for like 20 minutes. And it's amazing because then I wake up and I feel like a human. Um, And generally, you know, recovered from the chaos of getting everyone out the door on a back to school day. Um, But one alarm was not enough to deal with the chaos from this morning. Um, but it, in my defense, the boy child got a haircut. <laughs> the, tw- the 20 minutes turned into yeah, a little bit more. The, the boy child got a haircut and both kids got showers before they went to school this morning. Like, this morning. So that, I feel very impressive. good about that. But, yeah. That is a good start to yeah. the day. But I'm here now. So we've got two weeks worth to uh, catch up with. So what's been happening in Iowa the last few weeks? There was a birthday party. I'm guessing it's spring there like it is here. So what's uh, No, news? Arlene, it's snowed every day except so far today since the last time I talked to you, I think. Oh, delightful. The, Not spring no, at all. No, last week when I I sent you that picture that it was snowing and you were like, yeah, yeah snow, whatever, blah, blah, April. We got like four and a half inches of snow that day. Like they canceled school and then by the end of the day it was 45 <laughs> degrees and so it was all mud. Um, and it's, I think it's snowed basically every day since then, but like not enough to actually do anything, just enough to make all the little creatures that came out of their hibernation and all the little farmers that came out of their hibernation really, really angry. Um, (laughs) yeah. So, uh, anyone who's been following our social media saw one of the after effects of all that mud, um, Saturday, my poor sweet husband sorry Jim, was driving the loader tractor getting round bales to feed the cows and the one of the wheels broke on the front axle of the tractor. If you need exact tractor parts, I'll have to ask him for more more clarity on this <laughs> yeah. but it was not simply stuck it was it looked I, at a quick yeah at a quick glance it did look yeah. just stuck but yes the the wheel yeah, angle no, it's, is not it's great. not great. So they managed to limp it back up into the yard yesterday after a great amount of wrangling, which I, I believe, wisely stayed in the house for instead of, you know, mm-hmm. there's Good call. there comes a point in every relationship where you gain enough wisdom to know when your help is helpful and when it is more helpful to shut your mouth and stay the hell out of the way. Um and maybe keep the the, the little opinions yeah. out of the way, too. I'm yeah. guessing that maybe uh, the kids might have had some opinions. The boy child rode around with grandma, so he got to watch, but he was not um, in any danger or in any danger of having his thoughts heard about how to, how to approach the situation. Yeah. He had quite a few thoughts about how it had happened and why it had happened and... Um, very kindly did his rendition of the Peterson Farm Brothers Tractor Stuck, which is their parody of Thunderstruck, and um, he's very obsessed with it, and it's awfully freaking cute. But it would not be cute if one were, say, <laughs> pulling a broken tractor out of mud. 
I can see that having your five-year-old yelling, yeah. tractor stock, would not be super helpful. Um, we've had some new calves. We've had no more lambs. Uh, the guys started field work and then stopped field work with all the extra snow. So now we're just waiting. And uh, Yeah. What's the birthday party report? You have someone who we got do. Older. We have someone who turned five and who has asked pretty much every day since then if he is still five or if he can drive the car yet, because he's pretty sure that five is the age where you get right. to, yeah. Just about to drive the car. Yeah. And I don't mean like around the yard. I mean like home from town, 20 miles, drive the car. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. He can, yeah. He can drive to school uh, now. Well, no, he's, he's going to drop out of school now because he's five. So he's done with that. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> he got a lot of new tractors, obviously, which has been very exciting. Um, and then we went to a group birthday party for some friends of his this weekend, which involved a cake with frosting so bright red that it stained everything it touched. Um, I think I counted 25 children under the age of... There was one eight-year-old, and then all of the rest of them were under the age of six, um, and a bouncy house in the snow. So that's how nice. that's going. Um, yeah, it's spring birthdays in the Midwest are not a not a great thing. So, yeah, birthdays through the winter months definitely are a, a challenge. But the spring ones, yeah, you hold it, hope that maybe it'll be a nice day, and then have to go with your uh, your yeah. backup plan and um the girl child is insisting that we're going uh last fall we went to los angeles for a family reunion for a, a a memorial service and went to a hotel with an indoor pool so she's pretty sure that for her birthday we are going back to los angeles because that's apparently the only hotel that has a pool um so we're talking about taking the kids to great wolf lodge for her birthday uh, later this year, her birthday's in December. Isn't her birthday's not? Yeah, well, December? have you tra <laughs> you got lots You've of time traveled to talk with about kids, it? Arlene. It'll take that long to plan it. Um, yes, yeah, that's so. True. If anyone yeah. has any thoughts or tips about Great Wolf Lodge or anything else, we might need to know. Um, they have a condo option, which makes it quite a bit cheaper to take some friends along, and the kids can be loud, and you don't have to pay for meals, which would be nice. So. Yeah, we've been a few times, not to the same Probably one, I'm guessing, not, no. that you would be going to, but yeah. yeah it seemed fun. approachable and sort of like the Midwest version of Disney, you know, like, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but if anyone has any thoughts on that, and oh, other big excitement, I'm teaching the girl child to sew, like, with the machine, which she's very excited about. Um, mm -hmm. And... What's your first project? We made some blankets and some pillows for our elf on the shelf. So that's nice. that's been exciting. Um, she's very enthusiastic about it. And she's very angry because she, we actually bought a sewing machine for her the day that we found out that she was a girl. Not because sewing machines are for girls, but because I found a vintage pink machine. The boy child also has a sewing machine. Um, but she's very angry because it needs some work. And I had not done that work 
in psychic preparation for knowing that this would be the weekend that she would decide that she was ready to learn to sew. Right, yeah. So, that this is when sewing yeah. is going to happen. And she is... You have to use yours yeah. instead. Which is fine, but... And yes, she was already aware of the fact that she might sew her fingers before I even mentioned that danger. So that makes me feel better about teaching her to use a machine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, your, your safety chat, yeah, she already had yeah, part of that. She was down. already on the, uh, on the ball about that one. So that's good. Uh, what's been happening in your corner of the world, Arlene? Well, the weather update is that it hasn't been Yay. snowing every day. So, I mean, that's great for us, I guess. Um, manure went out. There's been some ground worked up. Um, one of my father-in-law's goals for this spring was to be able to get back into the tractor. He's been having, he had some health difficulties last year and has had some physical limitations that he didn't have before. And so one of the things he's been working on is building up his strength and being, figuring out how he was going to get back into a tractor again. So that was a big accomplishment for him. So he's been working some long day, long days working up ground, but uh, that's where he wants to be and he's happy about it. So that works out for us that uh, he gets to get that work done and that's where he's he's happy and in other news uh two weeks ago now we went to montreal for just a single night to the canadian holstein convention because our family was getting the century of holsteins awards so that was pretty exciting for all of us but mostly for my husband's grandmother who is 98 so she wasn't she wasn't there when they registered their first Holsteins in 1922, but she was born just a, a short time afterwards. And so it's kind of an inter interesting history because the cows came through her side of the family, although we live on the paternal side's property. So her dad had registered Holsteins and on the farm where we are, they had milking shorthorns back in the day. And so there was a time after she got married and her dad got quite sick. And so her and her husband were milking cows here, but also going back to her farm, which is about a half an hour away, um, and milking cows there as well. So they were doing all the chores on both farms for a period of time. And then when her mom and dad decided to have a dispersal and sell the animals, they ended up buying 10 of those Holsteins that were his and bringing them over here. So my father-in-law actually remembers the day where they moved the uh, some of the milking shorthorns straight out of the barn and the Holsteins came in. And so that is kind of the foundation of the herd that we still have here today. So obviously there's been some other purchases and, and other cows have, have come in, but the foundation of our herd still comes from those animals that were from her dad's place. So that was pretty exciting that we were able to go and actually receive the award in person and she doesn't travel much beyond her retirement home anymore so it felt like a a big trip to drive the the few hours to montreal and and go get that but it was nice that we were able to go with her and my in-laws and so my daughter and some of our other staff looked after chores here so we were able to go to that so that was really nice arlene i want to point out too that what is a half hour trip now would have been a lot more i would imagine in the late 40s and especially if they were going back and forth on a a regular basis to milk cows that's yeah yeah and i'm not sure how for how many months they did that but it was i think it was a, a significant amount of time i think anyway, it's it's so. easy to forget now yes, how much a... more 
that would have been back in the back in mm-hmm. the day. And also, I want to mention that when I was doing that social media post and I searched cow print to you know congratulate your family, it gave me red Holstein and it gave me mm-hmm. all sorts of black and whites that were not Holstein. And I I want to note that I used <laughs> a black and white Holstein instead of messing with you by using something else because I really wanted to. You know, oh, it was really tempting. So. Thank you. You might have offended yeah. many people, yeah. especially if you tag Holstein yeah. Canada. I, I wondered about that if I used, yeah, because there were some that were clearly <laughs> not Holsteins yeah. and would have really caused some yeah, problems. Yeah, they just happened to yeah. be splotchy. Yeah, so I think that's the main stuff that's been going on lately. Kids are going to school. My daughter actually did work a, a show last week, a, a show, but it was both jerseys and Holsteins. Um, so she was away for a few days there, and my husband went to go and watch some of that. So I was here doing chores while they were away there. But this time, there were no power outages or major ice storms. So it was a breeze. That's good. I see that no uh, ball hockey is back in, in season in what is the ball oh, hockey yes, season? Yes, I had my first my first game back. Um, well, women's ball hockey in my town apparently runs from April to August, so we've got uh, lots of games oh. to to fit in. But I had my first game on Monday, and I was sore until Friday. So uh, I think that it's going to take me a little while to get back into shape and uh, used to running on concrete and running. Period. <laughs> so, so is. We've is, got some very active young ladies on our team, which is a big. I help. was wondering if the <laughs> and by young the training like regime team. for ball hockey was more actual running, or if it was more like running for another pitcher of beer running. But it sounds like maybe it involves actual running. <laughs> There's quite a lot of running. Yeah, yeah. By the end of the game, I would my my two goals for night one were to not throw up and not pass out and I achieved my goals but uh, in the last five minutes I was definitely ready for it to uh, it to be over yeah but it's fun and it's something that I'm doing for myself with other adult humans wow. which is crazy pretty cool <laughs> yeah wild yeah all right why don't we introduce our Sounds guest good. for this week so today on the podcast, we're excited to be talking to Matt Breckwald, who's joining us from Idaho. I think this is probably our first Idaho guest. Am I right, Katie? Yeah, she's not. So. It's, an, it's an audio medium, but Katie always nods for me. So Matt, we start each of our interviews with the same question, and this is a way for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. So we ask the question, what are you growing? So for our farming guests, that covers crops and livestock, but it also covers families, businesses, which I know you've got a few of, and uh all kinds of other stuff. So Matt, what are you growing? Let's see, beef cattle, chickens, goats, the occasional pig, and uh, a little bit of sweet corn. And that's uh, We're a small farm here in Idaho, so uh, that pretty much covers the extent of it. So we have a scale. What does small mean to you? Because small, depending where you live, means different things. <laughs> that's right. I think mine is on the far end of the scale. So we have 33 acres. So we're really small, very niched in serving this uh, this growing municipality called Boise, Idaho. And what kinds of uh, breeds are we talking about? Because farmers always need to know that kind of info. Yeah, you know, I have almost exclusively pulled Hereford cattle. And uh, I mixed in a couple, I mixed in two black baldy heifers just two years ago. And, uh, but other than that, just pulled Herefords. 
and I've just stuck with that. And then as far as goats go, uh, we started with just a smorgasbord of everything. I mean, people just started giving us goats. That's how we got into the goat business is they found out who we had land and they just started donating goats to us. Um, so that was everything. But now that it's turning into more of a business, I've been refining it. And so we've been increasing our, uh, the amount of Kikos we have in our dough herd. And then we're running a boar buck on those Kikos. I like the idea that uh, you just have a drop off goat. <laughs> you, 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 you must give, yeah, you must give off a certain uh, aura that people think that, oh, he looks like a goat guy. No, I think it's the goats give off a certain aura and people think they're cute and they want to raise an animal. And then about six months later, they're like, what do I do with this thing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah it's wrecked all my fences and uh-huh. no, I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, exactly. So do you have to lock the, oh, sorry, do you have to lock the gate to keep people from dropping them off when you're not home? <laughs> no. Uh, well, I mean, technically I want to keep a closed herd, so I don't really want them dropping them off, but man, they're at the beginning. Um, I was like, fine, bring them, you know, we'll take them. We, we bought this place in 2011. It was nothing but weeds. And uh, the only reason we got those first two goats was my wife and daughter were impatient and they wanted some something. So we, uh, I tried staking goats out. That was an absolute disaster. So we got electric netting and we would start letting goats eat weeds and we had weeds for days. And, uh, then over the years we got some fencing put in and we developed the place and developed it and kept going. And, uh, then the goats turned into a business. I mean, they've been, I'm really into it now. Uh, they are a great commercial business. They're kind of, you know, a guy like me or a family like us on a small scale, we can't raise uh, commercial beef. The margins are too low. We can't raise enough to make any real money. So we have to direct market everything and, and have a marketing plan and develop a niche and do all of that. But with goats, we really can. The goat prices have just been fantastic. And so I don't market them at all. Uh, we just take them to the livestock auction and we let people uh, compete for them. And it's been great. So you already mentioned that you have a daughter as a parenting podcast. We always like to check in near the beginning, yeah. too, about uh, ages and stages of uh, where your kids are at. So uh, how old is she? Hattie is 16, and she is really, really kicking butt in the FFA. It's been going really good. And that's been this, like, uh, I don't know how much my audience has been uh thinking about it over the past eight years, but I cover a lot of FFA students in the country. And uh, they, I think they've been waiting to hear if my daughter was going to join the FFA. And I just actually finally featured her on the show uh, this January. Uh, I, so I had done about 11 or 1200 interviews with FFA students and then finally interviewed my daughter. So I, I waited until she reached a point where I went, wow, she's doing good. Let's have her on the show. That's pretty exciting to get to that point. Yeah, yeah. So, Matt, are you from a farm background yourself? Yes and no, if that's possible to answer it that way. So I grew up in a really, really tiny town called Valley Home, California, which is in the, uh, we call it the Central Valley, but the San Joaquin Valley there in California. And back then, it was extremely blue collar and mostly agriculture uh, people. I mean, we're talking a town of like 40 or 50 people. Uh, in the actual town core itself. And uh, back then it was uh, mostly rice farmers 
and a few permanent crops. There was a few people uh, that had almonds and walnuts. And then out on the fringes of town, you got into the dairies. And then even a little further out, you got in beef cattle. And that's what it was like where I grew up. Really, really tiny. So I was always around it, always exposed to it. It was just always there. But my family, per se, were not involved in agriculture. And uh, then my, my folks got a divorce when I was 10, I think. And my mom ended up remarrying um, when I was about 15. And my stepfather and his dad, uh, they raised cattle on a really small scale uh, in a town on the kind of the southern part of the county that I'd grow up, grown up in. And that got me exposed to actually hands-on with the cattle. And then that got me very interested. And then ever since then, I've always had my eyes on having my own cattle in my own place. So Matt, I know from listening to your podcast or one of your podcasts, you've got a few of them, um, called Off Farm Income, that you were doing a bunch of other things before you actually got into agriculture or back into agriculture. So Uh can you tell us kind of the short version of what you were doing before and what brought you back to being involved in this industry? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I don't know if there's a short version of the story. That's okay. Yeah. I just said that, but it doesn't have to be short. Talk as long as you want. So I got, like I said, when I was about 15, 16, I finally got my hands on cattle, you know, working in the barn and around the cattle and, and, and all of that and really got interested in it. And then came time for college and I graduated high school. I had no idea what I was going to do. I mean, to this day, I've never taken a placement exam. I've never taken an SAT or ACT or anything to, to go on into higher education. But I started school at Modesto Junior College there in the Central Valley. And I started out and said I was going to be an animal science major. And I was really into it. I used to just drive around the county in my free time with a textbook and try and identify breeds of cattle. And I would match them up to the pictures in my textbook. And that's my free time. I'd just drive around. I'd find the ranches I liked the most and try to identify breeds of cattle and was very, very interested. I ended up transferring after three semesters up to uh, Montana State University and finished my bachelor's degree in animal science up there. And during this time, um, I worked on cattle ranches in Montana. I even lived on a ranch in Montana. I fed cattle uh, for my room and board. Uh, I did a couple internships. I sold ag chemicals in the row crop and production ag industry. I worked in the fertilizer industry back down in the Central Valley of California. I just kind of was, I worked in almost every aspect of ag that you could think of. I did sales. And when I graduated, I, I got a full-time offer. I got a job or offer for a full-time job as a territorial sales rep uh, in the ag chemical industry. And I just didn't want to do sales. And I didn't feel like I had enough experience, even though I had the degree to go manage somebody's ranch. And there, I just couldn't find my place in agriculture when I graduated and I got that degree. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew that at some point I wanted to buy my own place and have my own cattle. And so I actually left ag and I went and became a police officer. Uh, that was an interest. And I was young. I was 22 when I graduated, I think. And uh, I was like, well, this will be fun. This will be a cool job. What a way to make a living. So I, I joined the police academy and paid my way through there. And I got hired by a, a medium-sized city in the Central Valley of California, became a police officer. And I mean, there was a few years there where I felt like I was stealing money. Like I couldn't believe they were paying me to do this. I would pay to do it. You know, it was, 
it was so fun and so exciting. And uh, I just wanted to try it out and do it. But it turned into more than that. You know, it turned into, wow, I really am providing a service. I'm doing something good for the community. Uh, it turned into a career. Uh, and there was a point in time where I thought I would run it all the way through and I would get the retirement and the pension and all of that. Um, but about probably 10 years into it, I think that season of life had passed for me. And I was, I was getting antsy and I wanted to do something different. Uh, my wife and I, we had a mutual goal of buying a farm and, and raising livestock and raising cattle. And, but we were living in the city at that point. And we had looked many, many times, but we hadn't figured out a way to get it done, to, to buy ground. And we kept looking and kept looking. And I was just getting more and more pulled back. Like it had always been the goal, but I was willing to put that goal off for a while so we could build, you know, some, some capital and some money to be able to do this capital intensive type of idea. Um, but by about year 15, cause I spent 15 years as a police officer, uh, I was like, we have got to get this done. And that ended up coinciding ironically with our daughter turning five and getting ready to begin school. And we had promised ourselves that she would be raised the way we were raised, which was rural, agricultural, blue collar. And at the same time, it coincided with the bottom of the real estate market here in the Treasure Valley of Idaho. Um, we kind of were behind the rest of the country during that housing crisis. And so our bottom was right at 2011. And so we got even more motivated as Hattie was getting ready to begin school. And uh, we saw the lowest prices that we'd ever seen since we were here because we're right on the very bottom of that, of that housing bubble here in, in Idaho. And uh, so we were able to sell our house. Uh, we didn't lose money on our house, which was good. Uh, and then we were able to buy the farm that we sit on today, uh, the first part of it, I should say. Um, and we got, I think, a really good deal on it, even though it was completely undeveloped. We had to do all the work to develop it, make it produce. But uh, still, we got the ground, and that was the big part. So at that point, you were, were you continuing? I know the answer to this question, but were you <laughs> working going to continue to work in law enforcement and also develop the farm at the same time? Or was that a commutable distance or were you having to actually make a change in your, uh, in your employment at that point? Yeah. You know, I didn't have to make a change and it was a very commutable distance. As a matter of fact, uh, I was a detective for five years and they gave me a car when I was a detective. But when I left detectives and I went back to patrol because I was going to promote and become a supervisor, I started riding my bike to work. This was when I lived in town. And I loved it. I loved that's the only thing I miss about having a job is I really enjoyed having a reason to get on my bicycle every day. And but when we moved to our farm, ironically, uh, it was a shorter bicycle commute from our farm to the police headquarters than it was from the house we had when we actually lived in the city. So that's how close we are uh, into Boise is we're really not that far. I, I rode my bike from here into work. And that was the plan. I, you know, my, my role models, my examples, uh, in life are always folks who had full-time 40 hour a week jobs, town jobs, and then they farmed on the side. One of the things I witnessed that I said I could overcome was burnout. Well, uh, you know, trying to get that 40 hour a week job done, working the overtime you need to work to make the extra money, all of that, and then having the farm and feeding and irrigating and fixing fence and all of that be another obligation on top of a job. Um, and so it kind of changed the 
the love of the lifestyle to an obligation, not something you get to do, but something you had to do. Uh, but initially for me, that was the plan. I, I was going to work full time. I was going to run it out through uh, my government retirement. And then I would finally be able to just farm full time and stay on my farm. That was the plan. But I had already started dreaming of a different lifestyle before we bought the farm. And so I was actively looking. And then once we got out here, uh, it really kicked into high gear. I really felt like I was living two separate lives. I was putting 40 hours a week in the city with city problems, uh, being a police officer. And then three days a week, because I worked a 410 schedule, three days a week out in the rural community, meeting with farmers and working in agriculture and just kind of felt like a split personality almost. And, uh, and so I got busy and I started my first business at that point in 2012. It was called Idaho Gopher Control. And it was a, a piece of equipment I bought that allowed me to infuse carbon monoxide at high pressure into gopher burrows and exterminate pocket gophers, which are a big problem for farmers out here in the West, especially those who are uh, growing alfalfa. And uh, that business went really, really well. And I developed a city customer base as well, which was surprising. And that went really, really well. So I started that. I made my first dollar in that business ever, May 25th of 2012. And on June 15th of 2013, I officially separated from employment as a police officer and became a full-time entrepreneur. And, uh, Man, there was just a morning a while after that where I found myself on my own farm, running my own business, completely self-employed, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe this transition that had happened. At one point, I wouldn't even allow myself to dream about it because I didn't think it was possible, and it would make me kind of depressed, but it had happened, and here I was, and I was so inspired, and I had listened to so many podcasts um, trying to get the courage to do what I had done uh, that I decided to start Off Farm Income. And interview other entrepreneurs in ag about what they had done and try and hopefully inspire other people to do the same. So Matt is an American farmer who uh, I work remotely for a tech company, uh-huh. which has been an absolute godsend for our family. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think the pandemic has been great for remote work because it's a more normal thing now. Sure. Um, you know, I know it's a different situation in Canada, but, you know, the USDA is saying that 91% of farm families in the U.S. have at least one family member working off farm, right. and that 89% of farm families rely on farm income for basically mm-hmm. all of their family income, um, especially for health insurance. So I'm wondering um, what the common characteristics are that you see in folks who are able to make their entrepreneurship or remote work or whatever, a successful thing. Oh, sure. And I should clarify, my wife actually does work off the farm. So she's a school teacher in town. And that's probably, I think the last time I researched it, I think school teacher might be the most common uh, profession of the spouse who works off the farm. I think it is. And so we're, we're right in that, we're right in that mold. But when it comes to the entrepreneurs that I interview that are doing well, um, I, Obviously, hustle is going to be a big part of it. I mean, you've got to have a work ethic. But really where I see people making it work are people that recognize um, that they're buying equipment for their own operation. And when they don't need that equipment, it's just sitting there. And that is a revenue source that's just sitting there. uh, And it's depreciating. 
and they could fire it up, they could take it out, and they could provide that service to other people. And that is a, that's a big thing I see with entrepreneurs who are also farmers uh, being able to do that. And then the other thing I see are uh, people who are farmers. I mean, we're just a special breed, right? We're self-reliant. Uh, we think we can fix anything. We can solve any problem, all this type of stuff. And you can take that mindset into town with you if you're close enough to town and you can provide service and know-how to people that either don't have the time, don't have the desire, or they just don't have the skill set, and that can be a business as well. And so I see a lot of people in agriculture in the in the space of entrepreneurship that I tend to cover, which are these these smaller owner-operated type service businesses. I see a lot of people just taking what they already own or what they already have as a personality characteristic and parlaying that into a revenue source and and recognizing how important it is that flexibility to help them be successful as a farmer because they can be on that farm when they need to be there. What advice do you have for farmers getting past, you know, cause we're all so it's so ingrained to be self-reliant and to just do uh-huh. it yourself to get past that and to just hire the folks that are doing, you know, custom manure hauling or like we mm-hmm. hire somebody to wrap bales for us because there's no point in us having equipment for that, for the number we do, or -hmm. even to the point that like we hire a house cleaner because it's financially not worth it for me to be cleaning instead Mm -hmm. of working. Um, So how do you see folks getting past that have to do everything myself um, mindset to actually doing what's reasonable? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I find myself falling back into that too and then realizing, no, I need to delegate. I need to hire this out. I need to focus my energies here. I need to, if I, I do the same thing and I fall back into that. And then I see more success when I get out of that. Uh, even though you sit there and you write that check and you're like, man, I could have done that myself and I would have never had to have written that check. But what I think it boils down to uh, getting out of that is really priorities. Um, and, but it's more than that because you've got to be able to see the alternatives. But I think if, if you're, if you're determined, meaning I'm going to make this work and I'm going to use entrepreneurship or whatever it may be to get me there, this is going to be the vessel that's going to take me from the life I'm leading right now to the life that I'm envisioning, or it's going to keep me in the life I've got right now. And I've got to do something to kind of hedge against input prices, commodity prices, all this type of stuff, I've got to do something that gets me through those rough patches. Um, Then I think if you get really serious about it, then you're just by default, you're not even going to think about it. You're going to be researching, how can I be successful in this? So a saying I have on the show on, on off farm income is always, sometimes you got to leave agriculture to go get what you need and then bring it back to agriculture and apply it here. And so with podcasting, when I started, there was nobody I could call and say, you're an agricultural podcaster. Will you be my mentor? I had to leave podcasting. I went to this conference in Tampa, Florida called Podcast Movement, and I found one other agricultural podcaster there. There was one guy in the crowd of 3,000 people with a cowboy hat on. I said, oh, there's my guy. You know, there's there's my crowd right there. It was just he and I. And, um, and so sometimes you got to leave and you got to bring that back. And so for me, when I was studying entrepreneurship, 
and I was finding my mentors, whether they were people who had written books, they were people that were hosting podcasts or radio shows or whatever, I listened to them and I studied them and I took notes. I mean, I took it very seriously. And a recurring theme that kept coming up was, look, you can't do everything. You've got to work on your business, not in your business. That is the, you know, that's the, um, the cliche that's out there uh, when you learn about entrepreneurship. And I had to leave ag um, and I had to learn about how people succeed in business. And then I had to bring that back. And I have, I've, it's constantly a balancing act for me on where do I delegate? What do I do myself? Um, and for me now, and this is years into this, uh, but for me now, I have the luxury of going, I get to delegate the things I don't like to do in favor of the things I do enjoy doing. And But back when I was first starting, I had to delegate the things maybe where the learning curve was too steep. Or like you, it didn't make any sense for me to be doing this thing. I could hire it done because the hours invested were just as high, but the output in terms of financially were completely different. And let's face it. It's not about material wealth or getting rich or anything like that, but you're going to need some capital if you're going to stay in the game of agriculture. It's just, it, you just have to be careful about that. You've got to have that nest egg, that rainy day fund, whatever you want to call it. You've got to have it there. And so you can't be frivolous with money, especially at the beginning. I know the other thing that's really helped me is trying to delegate to other entrepreneurs that are really you know, hustling themselves for their uh -huh. own businesses that, you know, if I pay a house cleaner, but she's running her own business, then I'm supporting someone else. Or like, sure. we buy a CSA share every year instead of me growing vegetables, even though I like to garden because it's okay. a lot more efficient on all levels to pay uh -huh. somebody else and support their business than for me to spend the same amount and get, you know, three tomatoes and a lot of crying. Yeah. So, well, I'll you know, tell you, Katie, I love that because uh, one of the special things about using entrepreneurship, I think, and supporting small businesses is it's it's more than just a revenue source. It's more than just flexibility and freedom. It's also a community. And so by you saying, no, I'm I'm choosing to support another small business, you're helping to build that community. I think it's great. So you already mentioned your involvement with FFA. And um, I'm going to show my Canadian ignorance here and ask you to describe a little or explain a little bit about FFA because it's not a program that we have here. So this is for my benefit, sure. but also for our non-American listeners who maybe don't really know what it is. I know the colors. I've seen the outfits. I, you know, <laughs> I think I think I understand a little bit, but um, even yeah, just kind of how it's structured, like on a national level, state level, that kind of stuff. I don't really have any context. So if you can just do kind of a, an outline for me, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, you bet. So until I think it's until 1988, uh, Katie, you might know the exact date, uh, but they were called Future Farmers of America. So I grew up knowing Future Farmers of America. And then they changed the name just to the acronym FFA. Uh, because they they wanted to they wanted to make they were getting broad they didn't just you know and it was a student organization that didn't just involve people who were going to be you know boots on the ground farmers there was ag industry and technology and all this involved so they changed the name so the FFA is a student organization uh, in well in public and in private schools and in homeschools a lot of homeschool organizations throughout the United States that is there uh, for the promotion 
of agriculture and agricultural education. And they have the recipe. I don't know how they did it, but they've got the recipe. It has got to be the, well, it's the single largest student organization in the world. Uh, currently, there's over 850,000 students enrolled in the FFA. I mean, they're almost to a million, which is just insane. Um, they're all over the United States and the territories of the U.S. Um, every year at the National FFA Convention, when I go, you see jackets walking around from Puerto Rico. Uh, I mean, there's FFA students there. Really incredible. And what they do is they... and. Oh, my goodness. I, I hate to butcher this. I am so niched in my knowledge of the FFA, but they've got this this approach to teaching agricultural education. So there's leadership, there's hands on practical uh, application, uh, and then there's the, the classroom stuff as well. And where I specialize in the thing that fires me up is what they call their supervised agricultural experiences. So when a student at at school, high school generally, but some middle schools as well, when they join the FFA and they're taking ag classes, when they join the FFA, it takes what they're learning in the ag classes and it adds all this stuff onto it. Leadership, public speaking, um, different competitions, how to write a resume, how to do job interviews, all these different things that are giving these 850,000 plus students this incredible skill set to where when they step out of high school, they are ready to go. They are so far ahead of your typical or your general uh, high school student in the United States. They can speak to people, look you in the eye, shake your hand, do a job interview, fill out a resume. A lot of them have certifications in things like welding, uh, small engines, uh, landscaping, horticulture, floral design. It's just incredible what they do. And, and what I love about it is these supervised agricultural experiences where they have to do, they're required to do one of three things. They're required to do either a research project, a placement project where they work for somebody in agriculture, or something where they do their own entrepreneurial venture. And that's where I interview FFA students. And so I'm interviewing students all over the country who are starting their own herds. I've interviewed high school students who already have their own farms. They they went they were working for a neighboring rancher, and the rancher wanted to, ret to retire. They didn't have anybody to pass the farm along to, and they did a transition plan with a high school student. I mean, it's incredible. I've interviewed students with lawn businesses where they're making $100,000 a year, and they're in high school. I've interviewed multiple students who have started businesses, and they had to hire their very first employee because they didn't have a driver's license yet. So they had to hire somebody with a driver's license to get them to and from job sites. And it's this incredible organization that is producing this leadership class in the United States of these unbelievably talented students. And what I love about the FFA too, uh, and boy, did you open the can of worms here, Arlene, I could just go on and on. But what I love about it too is how many students I've interviewed who are accomplishing amazing, amazing things who said, when I started in the FFA as a freshman in high school, I was shy. I wouldn't talk to anybody. I never would get up in front of an audience and speak. And now they're a state officer or a district officer or a national officer or something like that. And they're giving these, they're like the best public speakers our nation has to offer. It's just unbelievable what this organization does. And it's all centered around ag and the furtherance of agriculture. And uh, man, it just gives me a ton of pride 
to be involved in agriculture and to have the premier student-led organization to ever exist uh, be agriculturally based. I think it's awesome. I think as a as a livestock farmer who does sell stock to FFA students, one of the coolest things I see is that it feels like for so long, you know, generational farmers have kind of lived in their dad's shadow or their grandpa's shadow, mm. you know, that you just kind of stayed out of the way until somebody died. Um, and working with FFA students, they're consistently more prepared and more able to speak to adults than mm -hmm. most adults are certainly and seeing kids developing those leadership skills before they're working with family i think is so great to see them getting that experience of being a leader themselves and not just staying in somebody else's shadow until it's time for them to you know figure it out as they're okay. doing it i guess yeah, Katie, you are, I mean, you are spot on with that. And there's there's two things there I've noticed that I am just so thrilled for FFA students. Uh, one of those things is I've interviewed numerous FFA students who started a enterprise on their farm. It could be, well, I, I just interviewed one the other day uh, from Georgia who started raising and direct marketing hogs on his family's farm. There's another student I recall interviewing who they were production ag. And he started raising and marketing uh, grass, uh, like free range, not free range, but the uh, chicken tractor type chickens, uh, the grass fed chickens, broilers. And both of these students, um, I said, oh, is this something your family's always done? You know, I ask all the typical questions. No, my family's never had a pig on this farm in five generations. Or my family's never, you know, we've had some laying hens, but they've always been cooped up. We've never done this with the chicken tractors or anything like that. And I ask, well, why did, why did you do this? Why didn't you just do cattle like your family did or corn and soybeans like your family did or whatever it may be? And I've had so many students say, I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to try my own thing. And I love that because um, they've got the courage and the insight and the, uh, and the uh, confidence uh, coming out of the FFA to go, no, I'm, I've got to do this project and I want it to be mine. I want to own this project. I'm still working on the family farm. I'm still part of this operation. I haven't, you know, detached from them and said they're wrong or something like that, but I've got this thing that I own and I'm, and I'm succeeding with it. I've seen family farms adopt what their students were doing in the FFA because the student, you know, the 15 year old or the 16 year old proved it to mom and dad and mom and dad went, whoa, we can make money from chickens like that, and it can be an actual another revenue source on this farm. And they did it, and I think it's great. And the other thing I love about it is one of the most poignant things that I've encountered when in this last eight plus years of hosting the uh, the Off Farm Income podcast is there are so many people out there in the world who want to farm. They're out there on social media. And they all say the same. I shouldn't say they all say the same thing. But in general, you hear a lot of people say, man, if I could just inherit ground like this person over there, then I could be a farmer. I, you know, poor me, I didn't inherit any ground. But then I started coming across generational farmers who did inherit ground and they felt so much stress and so much pressure because if they lost the farm, if they had to sell it, if it got foreclosed on, they were the link in that chain that failed. 
that 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 chain might be three generations long it might be eight generations long and if they're the ones who lost the farm then they were the ones they're letting down like this chain of people they've never even met they just have this attachment legacy to but see when you see these ffa students who are getting independent and they're breaking with that pattern they're going no i want to try it this way or i want to try my own thing they're coming up with these alternatives and these alternative revenue sources and these different streams of revenue off of the same piece of property that will relieve them of that stress because they know they're not going to be the link in that chain that breaks. And I love that part of it too. As a parent too, it feels good to know that there's a program that's allowing kids to do some research, come up with some ideas. And then as a parent, you know, like you can support those projects but like you said, there's mm-hmm. not that stress of, you know, everything depends on this, right? You know, like, oh yeah, be creative, try something new. You know, we've got you, you can have this plot of land, you can try it out with these animals or, mm-hmm. you know, we can support your, your efforts and to try it out early, right? Versus when you're in your forties, like I'm guessing we <laughs> all are, or maybe in your fifties, you know, like if you're, you're trying to, to diversify when you're, when you're older mm-hmm. and you're looking at your debt or you're looking at, you know, like what the bank is, is saying is coming down the line. There's, there's not a lot of room for experimentation, but you know, in youth, that's when you've got that adventurous spirit, hopefully still, and lots Mm -hmm. of enthusiasm. And, and like you said, that, that work ethic and creative spirit to be able to, to try something new and see if it works and maybe it doesn't, but at least you gave it a shot. Yeah, Arlene, you are so right about that. You know, a 16-year-old student who lives at home, they have not felt the weight of a mortgage payment or of health insurance or car insurance or whatever else you want to put on an adult's shoulders. They haven't felt the weight of that yet. And so they're fearless. Their, Their question is never why. Their question is always why not. Why couldn't I do that? I've seen students start the craziest businesses and then take them places you couldn't believe because their question was, well, why not? Why wouldn't I try that? What, what, so what if it fails? This will be cool. Now, I started my very first business when I was, let's see, I started in 2012. So I, I think I was 38, 38 when I started that. I had a mortgage. I had a wife. I had a daughter. Uh, I had a new farm. I had a lot to lose. And so I gave myself one chance. Uh, I did it on the side for a long, long time, seven days a week, tons of hours every day because I was in this transition period from my full-time job to my new business. And if I had failed in that, I really don't know if I would have allowed myself to try it again uh, because it felt like a big stretch at that point in time. And certainly the, the fact that I had to mitigate all these other concerns in starting my business, that played into what I tried or, you know, how practical the business I was starting had to be versus I've seen students start dream jobs, businesses for themselves, and they're going to be able to do that the rest of their lives. And they love fishing. They love hunting uh, or farming or or whatever it may be or fixing up old tractors or or, or whatever. And that's going to be their full-time income for their whole life as long as they want it because they got started, they figured out how to do it, and they're going. Whereas the rest of us who start later in life, some of us just can't can't do the dream thing right off the bat because we've got all these other considerations. I know it seems like another one we encounter a lot with other youth programs is that when they're more 
competitively based. You know, there's such a bias towards the kids who can walk out to the barn and, you know, look through a whole string of expensive cattle and pick the best one and take that one to show or, you know, mom and dad will drop $3,000 on an animal, you know, and it's, you know, I know I hear from my husband who showed a lot in 4-H that, you know, they were looking at the names over the stalls and not at the cattle in them, you know, when the, mm. when the judging mm-hmm. happened. And one thing that I love about FFA, too, is that it seems like it's so much more based on personal development and what you're doing with your business rather than what you can walk in with. The, you know, I feel like when we sell livestock to FFA kids, you know, they're coming in with money that they earned or that they've been saving and they're mm-hmm. buying three sheep and, you know, raising some lambs and buying some more sheep. And it's it's a business rather than a how many ribbons can I get thing. And, you know, sure. I'm, I'm all for competition and winning ribbons, but mm-hmm. it's pretty shitty for the kids whose families don't have a whole string of show cattle in the barn already, you know, or who don't have those resources to just... You know, if adults would leave the kids alone, it would probably be a lot nicer than it is when, the you know, adults start living their own childhood out again. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, that right there is a huge can of worms. And uh, my daughter showed sheep at the county fair for many, many years. And I've sat around a lot of those those shows and those auctions. And I've I've watched what you're talking about. Uh, And certainly there I don't want to give the impression that, that that's not part of FFA. There's overlap there. Uh, there are students in, in blue jackets that are out showing some premier show animals. I mean, that, that absolutely goes on. And honestly, I, I no value judgment there. I, some of those students are excelling and they're getting fired up and they're getting into, uh, you know, embryo transfers and they're getting into artificial insemination and developing of genetics. I mean, uh, it's really amazing uh, where they go. And, and we've all got these different starting points on where we're going to get in life and, and we've got to, we've got to go with what we've got in front of us. Um, so certainly that is there. I mean, showing livestock those, there's a lot of FFA students out there throughout the country who their SAE is taking, uh, an animal or a few animals to fair and showing them. And so that's definitely, definitely part of it. But to touch on what you're saying, one of the things I really enjoy about this too, is when I get students on the show, who are farming for themselves. And we're talking students that got 150 acres or 225 acres or something like that. And they're doing these crazy things like they're hedging, uh, you know, by buying futures. I mean, just stuff I can't even fathom. And, the, and they're doing this with their soybeans or with their corn or whatever. I ask them, and to a student, how in the world do you do this? Well, they're all leasing equipment or they're leasing ground. They're paying rent to grandma and grandpa or they're trading labor for the use of the combine or whatever. And I ask them all, grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, aunt and uncle, they want you to succeed. So why wouldn't it be easier for you to succeed if you didn't have to pay rent? If they just said, take this ground and go make your enterprise, wouldn't it be easier for you to succeed? Why do they make you pay rent? And to a student, they say, well, how do I learn about the real world? If I don't pay rent, they want me to succeed. And they're wise enough to know that true success comes from me learning that I could lose all this and I've got to have skin in the game to make me really pay attention to this. Otherwise, what am I really learning? I'm not in the real world when I'm when I'm doing this and when I'm selling and I'm looking at the 
the inputs I put in compared to the yield I got and the attention I spent to the field and all this type of stuff. And I love that aspect of it. While we're on the topic of FFA, do you want to uh, brag about your daughter's project a little bit? This is a good <laughs> sure. opportunity to do it. Yeah, she just uh, she was just given a $1,000 SAE grant uh, sponsored by General Mills. So shout out to General Mills for sponsoring that. That was awesome. But she came to us about a year ago um, as a sophomore and said, I've got an idea for an SAE project. And I did not plant this in her head. She came to us on her own and she said, we have kids, uh, so baby goats born on our place every year. And we've got to pull a certain amount of them and put them on a bottle. And none of us like bottle feeding. Uh, we don't, <laughs> we just don't like it at all. Although we were getting better at it to where it's less frustrating. But um, she said, why don't I, in exchange for me taking care of all of the bottle kids, start my own herd beginning with the bottle kids that I take care of. And so we said, that is a great idea. So now Hattie gets up in the middle of the night. She does night checks during kidding season. She's pulling, uh, she's pulling the runs, you know, when there's a set of triples or quads or something like that, she's pulling them off. She's getting them started on bottles, which I just can't do. I can't stand it and I can't get them started. I just, I'm horrible at it, but she's good at it. And so she's getting them started on the bottle and getting us into the rotation to where now bottle feeding becomes much, much easier. She's pulling kids. She's saving their lives when one is down and it's cold. Uh, she's getting them saved and rescued, turning them into a productive goat later. And uh, she turned that into her SAE, building her own goat herd out of taking care of these bottle kids uh, in exchange for them um, with all this other stuff she's doing during kidding season. And that led to her applying for this SAE grant and, and them looking at her application and saying, yeah, we want to support this. So now this spring, she's getting $1,000 to go buy uh, a mature doe to increase her, uh, her herd even faster and then put in some facilities that will make raising bottle kids uh, even easier. So it's very cool. I was really thrilled when she came up with that idea. That is a good one. And it works out for you too, less bottle oh. feeding. It works out for me in two awesome ways, which is during kidding season on the weekends, I'm not getting up in the middle of the night. I actually get to sleep through the night and, uh, and during the week it would be that way too, except she's in school. So we'll let her get some sleep so she can actually study. And, uh, then her starting those bottle kids and getting them going as just priceless to me. Yeah. That's a great idea. So another thing we were wondering about today is, like you said, you're a former law enforcement officer and the issue of rural crime is something that people kind of always on, have on their minds. I was wondering if you have any tips or, you know, things that people should keep in mind when it comes to preventing crime on the farm or, you know, in your, in your home around your, around your property, whether it's property damage, theft, you know, all those types of things. What should people kind of keep in mind when they're, you know thinking about how to protect their families and their, their property. Yeah, I certainly do. So yeah, I, I, one of my episodes each week is devoted to nothing but rural crime. And I like to give tips if I can on stories I read, what could we have done about this? I would say number one, man, you got to know your community. When people are driving past your farm, you want people to know what cars should and should not be there. Uh, you know, rural crime, by and large, is going to happen when you are not present. 
And so you're going to be relying on the eyes um, and the intuition of your neighbors to be willing to make a call either to you or somebody else to say, something doesn't look right here. Is this okay? Um, and so really getting to know your neighbors, uh, I think is very, very important. I think we're better at it in rural communities than in urban communities, but overall the trend is downward, uh, at least in the United States, uh, for our involvement with our communities. And it's something that just out of necessity, we need to pay attention to, and we need to be purposeful about. So that's number one. Then number two, I like to talk about rational choice crimes when I talk about rural crime all the time. And so to give you just a little bit of background, there's a lot of different criminological theories as to why people commit crimes or what will lead to them committing crimes. And the, and the one that the United States penal system, criminal justice system is almost exclusively based on is what they call rational choice. And what this means is for most offenders, they're going to make a decision. They're gonna look at the crime that's available they're going to weigh the potential benefit of committing that crime against the potential cost, which is how likely am I going to get caught and held accountable? And then if the benefit outweighs the cost, they'll go ahead and they'll commit that crime, usually a theft or something like that. So when it comes to rural crime, we need to raise the potential cost of committing that crime so it outweighs the potential benefit to get them to move on down the road and not commit the crime on our property. And the way to do that with rational choice offenders are to use things, uh, I like to refer to them by their technical term, crime prevention through environmental design. We need to make things visible. So that neighbor that we've gotten to know really well who knows what car should be at our place, they cannot help us if they can't see the cars that are currently at our place. If we've got a huge hedgerow out in front or a ton of trees, which I really like, and it gives you privacy and it gives you peace and all of that. But if they're blocking the view of your farmyard and nobody from the road can see what's up there, then they can't help you by going, that car doesn't belong there. And so this is a concept called natural surveillance. We want to open up lanes of sight so people can actually see what's going on. And really it's great for the person driving by who goes, that car shouldn't be there. But where it's most important is in the mind of the would-be criminal. Because when they look at your farm and they see there's no way for me to get up there and be doing my thing without being spotted, they feel like they're going to get caught. And we've raised that potential cost in their mind, so they're going to move on down the road to another farm. Now, I don't want another farm to be burglarized or have anything stolen from them at all, but we've all kind of got to start and we've all got to implement this on our own. And so really doing things to make those criminals think they're going to get caught if they choose to commit crimes on your property, that's number one. And then you get into things that we call like target hardening, like locking stuff up and and uh, keeping things in locked buildings and, and all that. I mean, some of the stuff I read out of Europe, out of England or the UK blows my mind. They want people chaining up four-wheelers at night and just, it's just nuts. So we're really fortunate actually at least in the U.S. Up in Canada, Arlene, I, I do read some stories out of Canada, um, and you guys, you take rural crime more seriously, I think, than we do in the U.S., um, but uh, I feel like you're doing pretty well up there. So at, steps at, like, too. you know, like maybe not leaving the keys in every vehicle, is that what you're saying would be? Uh, <laughs> yeah, one? well, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. The, when it comes, you know, That's not even target hardening. That's just... Uh, <laughs> 
yeah. Here, take it. Yeah. Don't make it so easy for, for folks to <laughs> yeah. drive off of your stuff. A lot of people want to use tech. Uh, they want to use cameras and lighting. I'm fully in support of lighting uh, because it creates, it's not natural, but it creates natural surveillance uh, when it's dark out. Cameras I like, uh, but from a deterrent standpoint, the camera doesn't even need to work. You know, if the criminal thinks the camera's there and working, then it, the, the deterrent effect is the same as if it is actually working. But from actually gathering evidence and identifying people, um, then, yeah, working camera's good. The other thing I would say, honestly, if we want to have an actual impact in rural crime is as consumers, when we're buying stuff used off of Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace or something like that, we need to be wary of stuff that's too cheap. We need to ask a few extra questions and make sure we're not buying stolen stuff um, and contributing to the problem, even if it's, you know, by accident. We need to be we need to be wary of that and make sure that we're supporting our neighbors by not buying their stolen stuff really cheap from the people who ripped them off. Yeah, that's so, a really good point. So, Matt, speaking of cameras, I can say that one of the best things we've done for our farm security wise was to grant some neighbors permission to hunt our property because now they uh -huh. put cameras out there and he watches uh -huh. those cameras. And I have gotten phone calls in the middle of the night about, do you know who this truck belongs to? You know, and also when the cows are out, I get phone calls about that, which is real handy. <laughs> um, but it is having extra sets of eyes looking out for your property really does help. And especially somebody yeah. who's committed to keeping other hunters from trespassing. Um, I'm going to guess it's the same in Idaho as it is here, but what can we do to deter folks who are looking for stuff to steal for drug money? Because I mean, you're, uh, you're dealing with a whole different level of <laughs> rational thought, um, when you're dealing with people who are feeding addictions and that's, yeah, you, as much as we want to ignore it, it's not going away. So no, no. So, A, you, in a lot of these cases, you get outside the scope of rational thought uh, because they are feeding those addictions. But you've got to understand when there's an addiction to feed, methamphetamine, uh, something like that, um, the potential benefit of completing this theft outweighs the potential cost to this offender by a million to one because they need to get money so they can get you know, the meth or the heroin or whatever it may be. I, I, so for them, that cost benefit, I don't know if there's much we can do. Honestly, uh, at that point, to adjust that cost benefit ratio, uh, to put it in our favor. Um, but I, they're still rational enough that if they see another place where it's going to be easier, um, then they will choose that. But the, the, the cost benefit ratio has changed because now the cost is, uh, it's not for them. It's not just getting caught. It's getting caught and not being able to get what they need. So they feel good. Right. And so, um, so, so the potential still lies there, but you read stories like I do, or you work in the industry like I did, and you see people that are addicted do stuff that the best Hollywood film writers couldn't even think of, you know, just crazy, crazy stuff to feed those addictions. So really, when it comes to addictions, um, I, I think you're looking at target hardening. Uh, you need to make it to where they can't do it uh, because prevention is much, much more difficult. Now, I think you've got to weigh that against uh, the area you live in. So if you're in Kern County, California, 
if you're in Tulare County, California, or Stanislaus County, California, where I'm from uh, originally, uh, you need to do some stuff for prevention because there's way too much of that addiction going on down there. And if it is not nailed down, uh, and nails are not enough either, but you know the old saying, if it's not nailed down, it's gone. Uh, I mean, there's people down there stealing guardrails off the side of highways. It's just crazy, crazy, crazy. Where I'm at, uh, obviously we're not immune from issues with substance abuse here in Idaho, but it's not to the level where you just know eventually it's going to be stolen if you don't do something about it. And so then you're doing the cost-benefit analysis as the farmer. Is it worth my time? Is it worth my money to secure this thing based on the level of crime we're experiencing in our community? So I think each individual needs to look at their community and determine how real is this threat for me. And the more real that threat is, the more serious you got to get about target hardening, really locking stuff down, whether it's locked in a building, chained up, you've got a fuel shut off switch or, you know, something like that, something like that. So Matt, can you tell us about, I mean, I assume we're not the only rural area that comes up with some bizarre crimes. We had a <laughs> a guy in our area had a barn stolen. Um, like <laughs> they ripped the barn boards off and he came out and his barn was gone. Um, I'm wondering what you can tell us about some ridiculous <laughs> crimes you've seen. Cause this, it's real depressing to talk about drug crimes and oh, that kind of. Oh my goodness! Let's talk about stolen buildings instead. Well, hold on a second. I got to know more more about this barn theft. So, was the frame, was the skeleton of the barn still there? But just all the uh, the I barn think wood they took the, the timbers as well and left the foundation. I my impression is that it was not a real big barn. Um, we've had people have crops stolen out of the field. You know that somebody over shows up with a combine like just, overnight. The barn was I'm apparently so... like overnight. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They were very like just. They must have I really mean, wanted some reclaimed wood for something. Clearly like, that not we... <laughs> in it for drugs. I can't really see, you know, yeah. selling like ar- barn boards. Architectural crime there. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That is amazing. I believe it, by the way. I, I mean, that I could see it. And I don't know. They might have been in it for drugs. I mean, who's going to be able to stay up all night and work at that pace? My goodness. I don't mean to make light of it, but honestly. But I mean, that's they, some real entrepreneurial it. drive right there. You know? I know you wish might have been FFA kids. To... Tell you what, <laughs> FFA kids would never do something like that. I'm going to put a lot of money on opposing that. If we were to wager, I'd put a lot of money saying it was not FFA kids. My favorite is when when you see people get in pursuits with the police with uh with a tractor when they're when the police are chasing <laughs> yeah, the them very slow stolen, yeah with the slow moving vehicle sign on it right yeah they've stolen a tractor and they're running from the police but i did report on a story out of ohio this is probably four months ago and there was video of it i may not have believed it if there wasn't video it was a dui it was an honest gentleman in the buggy being pulled by the horse the sheriff's deputy is on video following him down the road. The guy's asleep in the buggy. The horse is going home and there's a can of Bud Light on the baseboard of the, of the buggy or uh, there as he's going home. So finally uh, he was able to get the deputy was able to get in front of the horse and uh, get the horse to come to a stop. And they had to go and like rouse this guy to wake him up. And he got a DUI on his buggy. 
So I like that's pretty I didn't the original self-driving vehicle right there though. <laughs> yes. You know. Tesla's yeah, I didn't know if is. DUIs were only on uh, motorized vehicles, but obviously that answers the question. Now, if you was if you were on a horse and not a buggy, could you get arrested for DUI if you're just on a horse? Uh, I'm not sure. Or is sure. it because that it had be, wheels? That might be RUI riding riding under the influence. I I <laughs> yeah. do not know. I do not. Yeah, Can these are the technical know? questions that we uh, we need answers yeah. to. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, uh, but it wouldn't be part of the vehicle code, I don't think. Yeah, that's right. This is the crime podcast the world needs right here, Matt. It's just <laughs> talking about this kind of stuff. You know. Yeah. These true absolutely. crime podcasts are all way too serious. Yeah. So as a parenting nag podcast, we're always curious about how parents are dealing with having kids on a farm. Uh-huh. Um, what has your approach been and how has that changed as she's become I mean, Arlene has teenagers. My kids are six and almost five, so I'm still in a pretty different place with this. But now that your mm-hmm. kid's a person, how is that changing? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, so the farm and the cattle uh, was a mutual goal of my wife and I, uh, but definitely my dream. And so we raised our daughter in the city for the first almost five years of her life. As a matter of fact, uh, we closed on our farm about her fifth birthday, almost identical. And, uh, and so we got out here and this was a whole new way of life for a five-year-old. And at age five, she's seen some life, not a lot, but she's seen some and she's used to a, a routine and a way of doing things. And all of a sudden now we're saying, no, get dirty. And, poop is not gross and uh, be out in the elements and do this and these big scary animals, you got to learn to work with them and, and all this type of stuff. And so for us, we had to kind of balance the fact that she wasn't on the farm from day one. Uh, There was five years of a completely different experience and we were adjusting to that. And we were adjusting to that because uh, when it boiled down to it, it was my dream to raise these animals. And so there's been, there's, there's moments on any farm, especially with livestock where, look, I need help. Everybody get your butt out here. This is, this is a family deal. This is our family farm and I need help. And I am not proud to say that those shirts that people wear that say, you can't hurt me. I herded cattle with my dad or whatever. Those shirts say, I'm, I'm not proud to say my daughter could probably wear one of those every now and then. And it would be true. I mean, uh, you know, there are times where uh, I had to really watch myself because I love it. And anything you love, uh, you're naturally going to get good at. So when it comes to just moving livestock and just being able to watch their body language and know what they're going to do and just keep everything calm and smooth and get things done the way you want them to do. And then all of a sudden you look at a, a couple goats or a couple head of cattle or something like that, and they get past my daughter and I'm sitting there going, how in the world did you just let that happen? You know, I got to really guard myself to go, no, we're on two different levels and she's out here helping me because I need the help. Not because this is necessarily the life that she's dreamed of. What's been interesting is for the longest time, because let's see, I started the podcast when Hattie was started the podcast in 2014. So she was eight years old and I started interviewing FFA students in 2015, 
and really wanted Hattie to be part of the FFA. But I, I was getting very afraid that I was going to be that parent that was going to force something on my daughter, uh, you know, like projecting my own, what I think is awesome, onto my daughter. And then there was another parent, another FFA parent I spoke with, who I mentioned that to, and she said, no, that's not the case. The FFA is an educational program, and that is a good educational program. You want her to be part of that. And I went, yeah, you're right. So then we approached our daughter and said, look, we, you're going to do FFA. You don't have to show livestock. You don't have to do any projects in the FFA you don't want to do, but we want you to get the education that you'll receive from being part of that organization. You can choose to participate in FFA however it is you want to participate, but you're going to be part of this educational program. And then we kind of took the same approach with the farm. When we didn't need help, look, this was my dream. This is the life I want. This is my business. I need your help at certain points in time. Um, but if it's not your passion, then you can't just sit on your butt. You need to go find your passion. But and you need, Or you need to find a job or sports or whatever. But you be who you want to be. And then we kind of just let go of the reins at that point. And it's really worked out. I, I couldn't be more pleased. Uh, it's really worked out. Now she's proactive. She's involved in the farm uh, on her own merit, on her own accord. Um, she's doing really well on the FFA, on her own merit, on her own accord. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I think that because she's an athlete, she plays. she's very good at softball, but she's so fired up about accomplishing things in the FFA now that I don't know if she's going to play softball this year, which blows my mind blows my mind, but I can totally see your point and I'm not objecting to it at all. Um, but that's not from Autumn and I driving her and saying, you need to do this or you need to accomplish this or anything. She's just doing it all on her own. And it was just us saying, you've got to be part of this, but now we're, we're just releasing you. You be a part of it in the way that you want to be a part of it until we need you for a certain task. Yeah, that's fair. Because I mean, even if you're not on a farm and you're just in the house, right? You know, there are some tasks that are family tasks and we all need to work together to do these things, mm -hmm. right? But then, yeah, there's those extra things where it's like, okay, you want to earn a bit of extra money or you want right. to do something additional? We can we can find an opportunity for that. Or yeah, you can get yourself a job once you're old enough, right? There's there's yeah. other ways to contribute to the to the family and to your to your bank account. So it doesn't always have to be from from home, but uh, well, yeah, she's got, they've got she's to find got, their own way. Yeah. And she's got chores and responsibilities. I mean, she has things she has to do. She has to contribute to the farm and to the household. I don't want to give the impression that um, that, that never happens. She has responsibilities that she must take care of just as being a member of this family. But it's interesting to the perspectives. I mean, I didn't grow up on a farm. I got exposed to agriculture later and then I lived a bunch of life between the development of my dream and finally realizing it. And so I come into ag with a totally different perspective than a family who is four or five generations deep and all the kids have always been fully engaged and they're on a tractor at age eight. And, I, you know, that's just not my experience. So it's difficult for me to put that on my daughter, uh, and not because it's right, wrong or indifferent, just because that's not the experience that I, I grew up with it with or that I've come through. And I, and I experience this all the time too, is coming into ag and into farming um, after living in that other world over there, you know, those 90 
eight, 99% of people who don't, um, then you got to come up with some sort of hybrid between the two. It's difficult to, uh, cause I, I look at farmers who never take a vacation. I look at farmers who are always there and they've never gotten more than three counties away and, and they're totally devoted and they're always there. And I go, man, I don't know why I'm not that person, but I'm not, I still go on a vacation. You know, I still, I still live a little bit of that other life. Um, but I was exposed to it for so long. It's just kind of part of who I am. Yeah. And I mean, everyone has their own priorities and their own economic situations too, right? You know, sometimes there are farms where there really are no alternatives, but that the kids are going to have to sure. contribute more or do more because sure. this is the reality of, of the life they're in. So yeah, there's, there's definitely no judgment on the way other people are, are doing things or, or the ways that, that work for other people. And every, that's the amazing thing about agriculture is that there's no one way to do it, right? There's that's true. There's no single path and we don't, nobody has to do it like the person next door. So and, everybody and I don't can judge, figure it out. I don't judge the folks I was just describing at all. If anything, I, I work really hard to not judge myself. You know, if I go off and I want to go camping for two nights, I try really hard to not beat myself up for doing that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and comparing myself to, to folks that, that uh, they're, they're even more devoted to it than me. Yeah, for sure. What's the thing that you appreciate most about being able to raise your daughter on the farm? It's just everything I'm seeing right now, honestly. The self-reliance, the independence, uh, the work ethic. Uh, I love the fact that she's been part of and she's also witnessed us persevering through certain things. Uh, she's seen us solve problems and she's seen us not give up. Um, and I love that because I know how life lays out. I know, I know what she's going to face. I'm almost 50 and she's 16. So over the next 34 years, I know what she is going to face. Uh, and I know the things she's going to encounter and I know the tools, the tools we're giving her, uh, by what she's witnessing. And they say more is caught than taught. You know, you've probably heard that saying, and I could talk until I'm blue in the face, obviously. Uh, but for her to watch it happen. Uh, I'm so thrilled about, and, and I'm, we're seeing the results of that right now. She's super independent. Um, she's saving money. She's working. She's, uh, she was walking home from school off of the bus, uh, three years ago, I think four years ago. And I was in town. Uh, we have a couple rental houses in town and I was in town working on one of them. And she called me and she said, uh, one of our goats that she had named raisin, uh, Raisin's having kids and she looks like she needs help. What do I do? And I said, I think you know what to do and I'm not there to do it for you. So call me back when it's done. And she called me back and she's like, I need to go wash my arms. <laughs> but in her school clothes with her backpack right there down in the little pen, she pulled three kids out, um, that were all breached and they all lived. And, uh, you just can't, you can't teach that out of a book. You know, you can't do that. I'm guessing too. She probably had an easier time than you would have, because I'm guessing her hands are smaller. <laughs> I, I tell easier people that's why we is... had children right there. I have big old hands. Like, yeah, easier yeah. time physically, uh, for sure. Yeah, yep. no, no question. So, what has your biggest struggle been with parenting on the farm? Uh, probably, probably. 
Oh, man, that is a good question. And this is not to imply... The reason I'm struggling to answer this is not because I haven't had any struggles. It's because I'm trying to pick one. Uh, you know, most of them involve me and my parenting style and my lack of patience. And that's probably, okay, so I think I just narrowed it down. It's probably my lack of patience. I'm not a super patient person. I'm very black and white. I'm very much a problem solver. I'm very much a, a systems person where I develop a system. And once I get a system going, then I'm very, very efficient. And once I get other people involved, it screws that all up, right? Because there's a learning curve. It, it messes the system up. Um, I'm not patient with them trying to get it figured out. And so I have really had to work on myself. I, and we say the joke now on our farm, when we go work cattle, when we go work goats, is that we're going to go do some Zen farm work, which means dad is going to be Zen. Now, I don't really know what that word means, but I think basically it means I'm going to remain calm. And so that's the big deal for me is for instead of me going, how could you let that cow get past you or whatever, or why didn't you get the head gate shut or whatever for me to first take that deep breath and go, okay, next time we want to try and anticipate the cow running into the squeeze, you know, whatever that may be. So really the biggest challenge has been working on myself. Uh, the kids want to please you and they want to uh, do a good job. They certainly don't want to get scolded and they don't want to do stuff that's miserable. So they want to enjoy the task and working with livestock and farming is unbelievably enjoyable because you can look back on the work you just did and see your accomplishment. Um, and that's outside of just enjoying the animals and the livestock in general. And so my biggest challenge is to work on myself and not ruin that moment. Uh, for my daughter, I think. That's a good one. That's it's, a good, it's a good reminder for all of us too, right? Yeah. We like honesty. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm, as I'm yeah. sitting there talking so, about myself, I'm like, that is pretty honest. Yeah. So much of parenting is about what's going on in our heads too, right? You know, it's, yeah. you know, while it's our response to how someone else is acting or what someone else has done. And, and yeah, our response to response to that is, is such a big piece of, of how we want to raise these people. So yeah. I know that asking for parenting advice is always tricky, but we asked you advice on lots of other things. So if you were going to share one parenting tip with another farm parent out there, other than being patient and Zen, do you have uh, another <laughs> parenting tip for uh, farm parents out there? Oh, that is tricky. I feel like, I should be the last person giving out tips. I should be asking for them from all these farm parents. Um, well, I will tell you, uh, th there's a serious temptation to make it easier for your kids. And I don't, I don't, I don't mean to make, I, I'm not suggesting you purposely make things difficult for them, but like these students that I interview that uh, tell me that they have to pay rent or they have to trade labor for feed or for pasture or whatever, Make your kids do that. Make them do that. Make them, they've got to have skin in the game so they take it seriously and they learn those lessons when those risks are minimized, those financial risks are minimized. So if they really truly want to do this, you're giving them the best chance to be successful because they already know the realities of the world going into it. And you just don't know how, how your kids are going to process information as they learn it, whether that's in high school or if they go on to college or trade school or whatever, you don't know how they're going to process the information that's going to be given to them. But in my opinion, 
they're going to process it a lot better and give themselves a lot better chance for success if they're processing that information through the lens of somebody who realizes that, no, uh, I could lose all this. You don't just get money because you bought a cow. You got to buy a cow, you got to feed it, and you've got to balance the inputs and all of this against what you're going to get out of it at the end. Yeah, that's a good point. You can't uh, set them up for success without being honest about, you know, all the things that go into it, right? And it's it's easy to right. tell them what things cost, but when they uh, when they actually have to pay those oh. costs or make those decisions or you know uh-huh. like actually do the math at the end, that's that's a whole different thing than just being told something. Because I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel like I've, there's not they're not listening. I think they are, but <laughs> <laughs> not well, always in the moment, right? I, I just, I had, I knew this moment was coming and I was so thrilled when it happened. Uh, Hattie got her driver's license this summer and she's got a car and uh, all of a sudden her willingness to go to town and, you know, get a treat or do something like that shot through the floor. She didn't want to do it anymore because she didn't want to buy the gas. But when it was us driving her around, she was always up to go and do X, Y, and yeah, Z. Yeah, no problem. Treat. Yeah, But then all of a sudden it was like, uh, there was a time I was like, you want to go get an ice cream or something like that? Yeah. 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 I go, okay, you drive all by. And she's like, eh, I don't know if I really want an ice cream. And yeah, I just, let's check the freezer. Maybe there's some uh, there. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are doing a good job. You know, my kids are still little enough to be all about going for ice cream. Oh. <laughs> So we ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, what would it be? And categories can be real or made up. Oh, then I would dominate the category of enthusiasm. I'm making that one right up. But uh, I, I have lived vicariously through these FFA students, uh, you know, for the past eight years. And then also, even prior to that, with my daughter being in the 4-H, although those things, two things were almost simultaneous, but all these uh, 4-H kids that were in her, um, you know, in her group, and uh, and then those kids at the county fair every year when we went. I love the county fair as a parent, being there, drinking a, a cold soda, and just hanging out and talking to parents and watching the kids work, and then watching them go in and show, watching them at the auction. To me, it is so exciting. And I get so, uh, I get so excited for the future that these these kids are headed towards. It's very exciting to see them doing something so pro-social, so proactive, um, and something that uh, will allow them to develop that work ethic and that ability to solve problems and make a living for themselves and have a great and happy life. I really, truly enjoy that. I would never still be doing this podcast if that wasn't true for me. So. For me, I'm saying hi to all the kids. I'm cheering them on. I, I'm so excited for them at the fair. And uh, that I, I could sit at the auction all day long, and I could watch the community support uh, these FFA students and these 4-H uh, members with these projects and, and buying their, their, their sheep and buying their pigs and their cows and everything way above market value uh, to support them. I love the whole scene. I love the whole community. Uh, of agriculture at the fair. And so I guess I'll make up a category. I'll say enthusiasm. That's great because there's, there's never anything wrong with our kids having more cheerleaders, right? 
to have no, some yeah to have some people in your community whether that be locally or you know like at the conventions to to have other adults out there who are excited about what you're doing like that means a whole lot to our kids and I think that that's awesome I'm picturing you with the you know like t-shirt with their their pictures on them or uh, <laughs> up in the stands of a cowbell or something not that enthusiastic well I mean if you're going to win the prize you might have to ramp it up a little but uh you know what you just said really brings up a good point too they've got these huge cheerleaders at the fair but they're not just cheerleading for the sake of cheerleading they're not just cheerleading to um to artificially elevate self-esteem they're cheerleading for something these students and these F- uh, 4-H members really did something they really did, which is learning how to work with that animal, putting in the time, the feed, you know, all of that. And that's on different levels for every for every exhibitor. But they did something. And uh, there's there's the, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow right there, which I think is great. Yeah, yeah it's good to, to recognize their work for sure. So I'm going to move us into our cussing and discussing segment. We've registered for an online platform. So if listeners want to leave their cussing and discussing entries, you can go to speakpipe.com backslash barnyard language and leave us a voice memo, or you can always send us an email at barnyardlanguage at gmail.com and we can read it out for you. I would like to cuss and discuss hearing yourself on a recording. I have recorded listened to and promptly deleted about 3,000 cussing and discussions on a really great topic of breaking cycles of generational trauma. But I can't send them to you because I am hearing my voice and I am a monster. I'm not sure how I have friends. Why are people listening to me talk? This is awful. Zero out of 10. Do not recommend. No, no, no. Katie. What are we cussing and discussing this week from your home in Iowa? Um, I'm hoping this sounds more positivity and less, you know, uh, toxic positivity, I guess. But, and I know I normally cuss stuff, so this might be a, a departure. <laughs> Watching my kids turn into people, and they've really accelerated it being people the last couple months, is possibly the coolest damn thing that I've ever seen. And watching them learn and grow and develop ideas about how the world works and just what good friends they're becoming. Although the girl child told me the other day that they are not friends because they're brother and sister, but they do apparently intend to get married to each other. So I, I don't know. Um, yeah, they're still figuring out how the world yeah, works. They're yeah, still, they're still working on that. But just, I'm so excited to see who they're going to turn into. And that was really the part of parenting I was not prepared for, was Hmm. being so excited and impatient to see where they're going, because it's going to be somewhere awesome. And I'm just really excited for that. That's a great perspective to have. Yeah. And it's, um, it can be a hard one to hold on to, because there's still a lot of days that I'm just, what the F is the matter with you guys? (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, the rest of the time, they're pretty damn cool. So, yeah, that's good. Matt, what do you have to cuss and discuss? Oh, well, I, I don't know why I feel like I'm a glass half full type of person, but when it comes to something like this, I always tend towards the glass half empty. Uh, the urban sprawl where I'm at, uh, where both of you are at, uh, is that an issue? 
we've got some new houses that I can see from my front porch mm. that are being built right now. <laughs> so, okay. yeah. It's yes, it's happening. Not as much where I live now, but my hometown. Yep. Uh, it's, okay. Uh, it's bad. Yeah, and I apologize. Is it Kate or Katie? Katie. Oh, it is good. I've been yep. calling you Katie. I had yeah. it right. I'm so sorry. As long as you don't call me anything um, rude, I really don't care. So, <laughs> so uh, it's it's so interesting because Katie, you were bringing up the remote work earlier which is huge for those of us that want to stay on our farms and be there when we need to be but i've talked about this since the beginning of of the off-farm income podcast which is the reason i am such an advocate for entrepreneurship is it it can solve this catch-22 which is if you have a job that pays enough money for you to afford land you got to live too close to the city land's not affordable it doesn't pencil out to farm on if you get out far enough where land pencils out to farm on, there's no jobs or there's not that many or they don't pay that well. And so the land is priced appropriate to what you could make off of it. But now how are you going to support it with your off-farm income? So I've always said entrepreneurship is the answer to that riddle because when you get out far enough, you're only competing with other farmers for that land, which means that land's value is going to be based on its production capability not on somebody who just wants some elbow room or something like that. But it's ironic. Urban or uh, urban uh, remote work uh, all of a sudden can change that dynamic and it can change who you're competing with for that land. Now, for me, remote work factors into it a little bit, but we just happen to be in an area that's exploding in population. Uh, this area has been discovered and it's exploding in population and while ultimately on a financial basis, at some point, uh, you know, if we choose to cash in, our land will be more worth more than we paid for it. Uh, it's not why we bought it. We bought it for a lifestyle and we bought it for a future that we envisioned that involved livestock and farming and, and peace and quiet. And that is quickly diminishing. And, uh, and also it, it affects our bottom line. A, a lot of ground that uh, it's really it's interesting. It's all dichotomies. A lot of ground around us that previously uh, was in production ag production has now been sold and they're subdivisions. So there's no production. So a lot of the hay as a guy who needs to feed hay, a lot of the hay of fields I was buying hay out of now I have houses on top of them. So there's no hay production there. But at the same time, further out, a lot of ground that was, you know, thousand acre farms have now been divvied up into a bunch of small farms and what was production row crop agriculture with no feeding needs now has a bunch of small farms on it and people have got goats and cows and horses they need hay so ironically as we lose hay production the demand for hay is going up and so our price continues to climb if you can find the hay and so this urban sprawl issue is uh it is irritating yeah and I mean, we've been talking for I don't know, years about, you know, that that agriculture, that people in rural areas need good, good connectivity. You know, rural Internet is an issue, right? We, mm -hmm. we can't compete on a national or global market without rural connectivity and without good Internet access. But then that just exacerbates the problem, right? Because then if yeah. people can work remotely, live further from their jobs, then, yeah, the, the economics of, of living in rural areas changes for everybody. Not just right. not just for us, the people who were here, the people who were here a little bit earlier <laughs> than yeah. the ones who are coming after us, right? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I completely agree. 
Arlene, what do you have to cuss and discuss? So at the time that we're recording, it's winter, which means it's meeting season. So my cussing and discussing is not from a specific meeting, but from, you know, I'm guessing that you guys both know what I'm talking about. You're at a meeting where there's a, supposed to be a question and answer period. And the people who get up to the mic who have not a question or an answer, they just seem to want to talk <laughs> about something, usually something that's already been covered or ask the question that's already been answered. It just drives me batty <laughs> because it's like, listen to the presentation and either have a real question or just, you, you don't need to go to the mic. There's, you could just, we could just end early and go to the snack table. So, yeah, that, that's mine for this week. But Arlene, was yeah, that person sounds... speaking English or French? <laughs> Katie and I were discussing the other day the fact that I was at a meeting and I realized my French was not as good as it should be. But uh, uh-huh. I live in a, an area that's, that's bilingual. And um, so we need to, I need to practice my skills. I'm not watching as many uh, French kids shows as I used to. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm getting rusty. At least in French, I don't know for sure if they're asking a question that's already been covered or not. <laughs> it's it's the, the English ones that, and not every meeting has full translation. So people, people are allowed a bit of grace if it's not in your first language. But is it worse to think that you understand them and they're asking something ridiculous or that you don't understand them and they're asking something super insightful and interesting and you don't know what they're talking about? Well, that's a whole different cussing and discussing. It really one, is. I guess, okay, I next week. Before. Next time, we'll find <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah, that's right. All the bilingual issues I had not considered. So I want to, we both want to thank you, Matt, for joining us today. If people want to find out more about you and your work and the podcast, where can they find out more information online? You bet. Hey, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you both for inviting me on. I really do appreciate it. Uh, the website is offincome.com. And it's the Off Farm Income Podcast, and it's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Play and everywhere you find podcasts, it's out there. Yeah. If you're listening to us, you know how to find podcasts. That's right. And we'll definitely include it in the show notes, too. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks, Thank Matt. you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyardlanguage to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.